This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're in our London office talking about Europe's private capital market, from what's driving growth in this alternative asset class, to what sectors and regions throughout Europe are most ripe for innovation, to challenges facing small to medium-sized businesses and much, much more. We're joined by Greg Olofsson, head of the European Special Situations Group, or SSG, as we call it at Goldman, and his colleague Nishi Somaya, head of the private capital business in the European Special Situations Group. Greg and Nishi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So before we dive into specifically what you do every day and and the business you're running, talk a little bit about the evolution of middle market lending here in Europe and the importance of it to the overall economy of Europe. Sure. In order to do that, we need to step back even further back into the beginning of innovation in lending. And that emanated from the US. I mean, back to the Drexel days where high yield was really invented. And the idea was that lenders would fund companies that perhaps weren't established credits in the traditional sense, but with a formula that allowed them to get paid for the risk they were taking. So the high yield market emerged, innovation took off as it does in America, and that came to Europe. At the beginning of our careers, we were part of that in the kind of the early 2000s here in Europe. And then you had the global financial crisis. So you had this kind of secular trend anyways, and then you had this almost catalyst for a much greater need for alternative lenders in Europe because the banks really were not lending. The banks in Europe, I mean, banks were hit in America, but the recovery was much, much faster. In Europe, we're still recovering. And so banks were retrenching. Banks were recapitalizing. They were working through their bad loan books. And there was a gap in the market. European banks have been the traditional source of lending for this market. You're absolutely right. They're disproportionately important. I mean, it's something like 70% of all credit provision in Europe is still through banks. And so it's a much bigger part of the market. And that part of the market was troubled. And so that provides a gap. You've got the secular and the cyclical intersecting. And we really stepped into that. And others have noticed too. I mean, there's been huge amounts of capital raised to go after this opportunity and serve a market that is heavily mid-market oriented. And so in any event, probably doesn't access the traditional high yield product. It needs a loan product. Yeah, I think many of these companies, certainly in Europe, this started as financing companies that couldn't access the capital market, either because of their size, they didn't have a history of sort of nicely cleaned up financials that they could present to a bunch of public investors. And the opening of this has seen the influx of a number of asset managers step in to provide this type of capital. And now we've gone beyond providing the capital just to companies that can't access public capital markets. This form of lending in Europe has evolved and has become an asset class in its own right to the point where companies have now an option where they go. They could take a high yield bond or they could come and take a privately negotiated loan solution. So it's really evolved fairly quickly. Key to all of this is innovation. The whole thing about the alternative lending space is that you'll lend against businesses. It's again, it's back to that very beginning of what I said about the high yield product. You'll lend against businesses or business plans that don't have a 30-year history of borrowing and paying back and then relevering. These are businesses that are growing. And so if you take, for example, a restaurant chain, they have maybe 30 burger outlets or something like that in the Southeast of the UK, and they want to grow that to 50. 
but they need capital to grow that. I guess they could do that over the next 10 years by internally generated funds, or they'd have to raise some expensive equity. That's the traditional way in Europe, because their bank's not going to give them that money on the business plan. We can underwrite the existing 30, but also we understand how those businesses can grow. We put controls in place, and we can provide capital against that plan and get paid for that. Obviously, in the wake of the financial crisis, central banks around the world, but particularly in the US and in Europe, slash rates. And so we've had now a decade of very, very, very low and sometimes negative interest rates. How has that long period of low interest rates played into the growth of this market as investors look for yield? A lot of this capital, as Greg alluded to, comes in the form of loans. And these loans are seen as having a very low correlation and certainly low volatility to competing asset classes like equities or the high yield markets. And they're also typically secured. So these characteristics, the security and this low volatility of the product makes it very attractive from a risk return perspective, particularly when you look at where some of these competing asset classes are trading. And you know, you can earn sort of six to 8% yields in this asset class versus looking at the high yield market where you have crossover spreads at sort of 275 basis points. So that spread above rates, benchmark rates in whichever country you're in is still quite high relative to some of these other asset classes. And I think you've seen that with just the growth of capital that's come into this space as a result of that. So I think in Europe alone, you had 29 billion raised in 2017, which was peak capital raise year for this asset class. And when you consider 10 years ago, it was a relatively unknown asset class. So really, the low rate environment has fueled a huge amount of capital growth here. The European market was in the past very bank dependent. And if you were a company, you really had to go to a bank to get a, a traditional loan and, and the banks have pulled back. But now this asset class has grown. It's become more competitive. You mentioned the amount of money that's been raised. What are the risks associated with that marketplace becoming so competitive with leverage going up, pricing coming down? Does this have the characteristics of a bubble yet? I'm not sure it's a bubble. I think those very strong secular trends we talked about probably mean that there is natural growth and it's normal that this will scale, but certainly there will be excesses. And those may manifest themselves in price. Price is what somebody will pay for something and that changes through time. Spreads will widen in periods of greater uncertainty. And by the way, this growth has been in a period of very, very benign market conditions, economic conditions, the low volatility that people speak to about this asset class, it's to be tested. It did perform well relative to other asset classes through the global financial crisis, but it has been a benign period in particular in Europe where this asset class has really taken off. And that gets to the important point about current conditions where it really manifests. I mean, these are all negotiated bespoke transactions. Every transaction, we write a credit agreement and we negotiate a credit agreement. And while there are standard forms, um, the devil is always in the detail. And I think what will be interesting to see as it plays out is just how well those contracts have been negotiated. And then how the new players in this are able to manage a less benign environment. As a bank, we have scale. We have colleagues in the Federation is an enormous resource to help us manage the risk and loans are bespoke. We have large teams. Those are going to be called upon when the cycle turns. There's no doubt that credit selection is an important piece of this, but terms, as Greg says, have been significantly weakening. And I think that's something to keep an eye on because in a world of sort of continued economic and geopolitical uncertainty, banks will be 
some of the first to put the brakes on. And that could create an opportunity, actually, for alternative lenders to come in and earn higher returns and put more capital to work. But you can only do that if you're operating with a healthy, relatively healthy portfolio. We're really keeping an eye on that. And that's something that is going to be increasingly important. Just terms and covenants are something that were very heavily featured in these deals when we first started this business. And now 80% of deals are covenant light. Greg, you mentioned that this market really took off first in the US, but mm-hmm. has now become increasingly prominent in European capital markets. Describe a little bit the difference between the two big markets, US and Europe, and how they differ in size and sophistication. The US market, I'm Canadian, but I spent my entire career in Europe, so I've never had access to what I'm about to describe. It is just so much bigger, so much more liquid. Leverage finance product in general, it's order of magnitude five times as big as Europe. And that's 30 years into the development of these leveraged markets. In the direct lending space, it's maybe as much as 10 times as big. It's just a much more established, much more liquid. You have greater scale. And this is a business of scale. I mean, it's a business of volume, but when you're earning five, six, seven, eight percent on a given loan, it's as much work to do a 25 million euro loan as it is to do a 250 million euro loan. And in some ways, you know, given that it's a smaller, perhaps less resilient, maybe with a, you know, a shorter track record company borrower, maybe it's even should be a little more work. Now you do get paid for that and you get better terms. So the US market is bigger. It's more liquid. It's more established. Europe is not a single market in the sense that you don't really have businesses that are operating yet across all of the countries of Europe. And so they tend to be quite local. There are languages, there are regulations, and there are local players. You have different clients in different markets. And so there's a lot to manage. Europe is a complex place and that suits us well. We like complexity. You mentioned we're now a bank. We've been a bank for 10 years now. This is the kind of lending we did even before we were officially a bank. What kind of a priority is this as we look at the strategy of the firm? What kind of priority is this kind of lending? Yeah, as you said, it's always been core for us to lend and provide capital to companies. And the mid-market is an extension of that. And it's something we've clearly been very focused on over the last few years. But it's a natural extension for the broader firm as we think about the other services that these customers and clients can access. You know, we already provide derivatives business, swap business, IPO business, M&A activity with large cap clients. This is something we can extend to the middle market. So this fits and dovetails very nicely with, I think, what the firm wants to do more strategically and hence puts it very high up there in terms of strategic priorities. You talked a little bit about the growth of this market in Europe. What sectors are driving the growth? What are the companies that are really reaching out for this kind of funding? Obviously, big companies can IPO or do a bond, but what kind of sectors have been relying on this kind of funding in Europe? It's very broad and across the whole base. There's very, sort of, I'd say, old economy businesses that are still trying to access capital either to restructure or to find ways to become more innovative and efficient. But there's no doubt that we see an awful lot of capitalizing in the tech space. Tech growth is a global theme. It's definitely a place where we spend a lot of time as a business. The digital economy is outpacing growth of any other economy. And it's certainly one of the best performing sectors we've seen, uh, not just from a financial perspective, but also contribution to the economy and productivity. So we spend an awful lot of time there. And, you know, the innovation in tech spans so many things, everything from the way we purchase items on a daily basis, from the way we travel to even through to the business space in terms of enterprise software efficiency and business organization. 
And then really in finance as well, if you look at the amount of innovation in financial tech, there's a huge amount of capital that's being raised there to provide extension of credit to SMEs, mortgage-backed lending, allowing consumers to access credit more efficiently and quickly. Um, we spend a huge amount of time when we do lend and invest in a number of those companies, and it's a fairly significant part of what we do. So beyond the sectors, geographically speaking, what parts of Europe were you seeing the most tech innovation in this space? It's pretty broad-based. This private capital activity has presence across Europe. We have people on the ground in France. We have dedicated coverage into Italy, Germany, and obviously the UK was important. This technology opportunity is not really localized. There are pockets, and we're finding opportunities, even places that we wouldn't expect. Israel is a very important opportunity, and that is part of our remit. It's well known that there's great innovation. It flows from the knowledge-based economy that is very well established in Israel. Perhaps there's the military complex. We were investors in Mobileye relatively early, which is one of the key companies in autonomous driving. They have the- The sensors. The sensors yeah. in the cars, and this was bought by Intel ultimately, but we were pre-IPO investors. The firm took it public, and then it was ultimately acquired. Israel is important, but our single biggest growth equity investment in Lisbon a low-code software development business that is one of, we think, the biggest and most innovative companies in this space globally. We and a client, KKR, made a significant investment for around 30% of the company. This is a business that's growing in excess of 65% top-line revenue per annum. And they basically do low-code software development, which is basically module-based coding. And the core of what they're doing is helping companies digitize. We, again, are very familiar with that. We're going through that as an institution, but also every company in our portfolio is facing that challenge to some extent. And this is just a more efficient way for customers. And they have over 1,000 enterprise customers globally. They wanted us because we can help them continue to scale, ultimately access the capital markets. And importantly, the United States or the America's market is where they're a little less penetrated. So we, and it was KKR, it's public, we can talk about it specifically, combined to provide a capital solution, but I think it's more than just that. It's a partnership to help them achieve these significant ambitions that they have. I think for a lot of our listeners, when they think of tech innovation, they think of Silicon Valley and American companies. You've given a couple examples, but talk about other innovative companies here in Europe that are really trying to change things globally from a European base. We have many in our portfolio. Nishi talked about the financial space, and there we can provide equity capital, we can provide more structured capital, or we can provide loans to help them, like the fuel to help them scale. These companies may be lending to SMEs, maybe lending to, I mean, you could talk about maybe Neighbor, which is another good example where here in the UK where, you know, they extend credit to individuals, but we're providing support to the company to help them make those loans. So you talked a little bit about Israel and Mobileye. Why has Israel become such a center for new technology? Israel is undoubtedly a real hub for innovation and entrepreneurship. I think Tel Aviv has the highest number of startups per capita. And it's for a number of reasons. The government has clearly created the right incentive structure and environment for a lot of this innovation to occur. They've had tax breaks for tech companies. They've created homegrown VC sector incubators, for example. But I think it's also very much to do with the history and culture of the region as well. Greg mentioned the military service. That mandatory military service for both men and women has definitely allowed extremely bright individuals to experience 
and take extensive knowledge of technology. They work closely in teams and they take those things and apply those partnerships and translate them to startups. The population makeup is also very interesting in that two-thirds of the population are immigrants. They've already taken the risk of uprooting themselves, moving. And so that natural risk-taking instinct, I think, and drive is there. And, you know, when you look at entrepreneurs, some of the things that they need to exhibit, I think, to be successful really resonate in this culture. The size of the country is also really interesting because it means that these entrepreneurs have to think very globally from the outset. They ever want to scale. They need to move beyond Israel. Exactly. Europe has struggled for a long time now with low growth. These are companies that aren't quite startups, a lot of the ones you're talking about, but there aren't big companies, established companies yet. What are the challenges that middle market companies face as they try to scale in a low growth economy? Everybody has their challenges. They have the challenges in many cases, the challenges of growth, the pace of growth, the fact that they, in many cases, will become regulated or at least more noticed. The process of institutionalization is something that they are often grappling with. We can help them with that. We have 150 years of bringing companies to markets, telling that story, preparing them. Institutionally, we have that experience and we have a good track record of helping them put their proper procedures in place, ensure that they have good reporting, ensure that they have the best standards around whatever it may be, FCPA, compliance, etc. Then there's the biggest challenge that all companies face is attracting talent. We help them get noticed. When you have Goldman Sachs as your partner, that says something. And I think it definitely is one of the things that they want from us. It's more than just capital. It's to sort of raise their profile. There's market access. We certainly help our portfolio companies. You know, if they want to speak to any corporation of any scale, almost anywhere in the world, we can help facilitate that call, at least the first call. And that's powerful. They have a lot of challenges. They've got challenges of smaller companies coming at them from different directions. And then they have the challenges of the large companies. It's not like they're standing still. But we find them to be very exciting partners to work with. They engage with us. There's usually something happening. There might be bumps on the road, but we work with them. I mean, remember, we're a lender here most of the time, but we'll work through those issues in a constructive, supportive way. We like companies that need more capital from us. Let's grow together and we can lend they more. They grow, there's more business. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, as the market's grown, the private capital market here at Goldman, how has the strategy evolved as it's gotten bigger and more competitive? We first really established ourselves in the core geographies of Europe to build a market presence in the key areas. And I think what we've learned and what we're evolving to is this is a very big market, which we're penetrating really at the surface. And regionalization is probably something that's increasingly important. And here in Europe, that's a challenge because again, this is a scale business and you've got multiple different countries, different cultural processes, different corporate governance, different languages. So navigating through that and, you know, we're hiring people in some cases, to be based more locally. We have people on the ground in Paris. We've hired somebody to focus on Germany very recently, but really penetrating more regionally and getting away from only sponsor-led business, which the European alternative market is very focused on sponsor activity rather than directly dealing with middle market companies and entrepreneurs and owners. And I think to do that in the middle market, this local presence and relationship is very key. And so investing time in that and investing in the build of that is something I think we're extremely focused on. So Nisha, you're also a lead investor with Launch with GS, which is a firm's relatively new for-profit investing initiative focused on women. What is the climate like for women founders in Europe and what kind of challenges are they facing? 
think the biggest challenge for women founders is actually accessing capital. When you look at a lot of research done, something like less than 2% of um, VC funding goes to women-founded companies. That has an effect for the whole of the life cycle of their companies. They can't get capital to start with. They never really get going. They never get off the ground. They never even get to enter the late stage phase of growth. So when you look at the numbers there, it's even worse. A huge part of the drive around launch was really to try and be part of a piece of rectifying some of that and at least bringing awareness to the issue. That's definitely the number one driver of launch, but also the number one problem that we're trying to fix. And as you've begun dialogues with some of these women founders or investors, what are some of the questions that you're hearing from them? I think they're really trying to understand what it is that we're looking for, because especially in these sort of early stage businesses, there isn't a huge financial track record or history that you can anchor off as you would in a much more established business. And so I think they're really trying to understand what is it that we see in certain management teams or individuals that gives us comfort that they can execute on the plan. And, you know, a lot of that is down to personalities, their own resilience, their tenacity, their drive, passion willingness to listen. Greg talked about it a little bit. This is not just about access to capital, but also the willingness of these companies to take on guidance and strategic thought leadership around how they can institutionalize themselves. So there's a lot of time spent on helping, and certainly as part of this initiative, training around what kind of things they should be looking for, how they should present themselves, and how they should engage with potential investors. So Greg, um, Back up a little bit in your career. You started 18 years ago as an investment banker here at the firm. You've switched into investing. What kind of advice would you give your younger self now, looking back on how your career progressed? Well, first, I'm very glad somebody remembers I was in banking at one time, given our new leadership. But kidding aside, that was, like you say, a long time ago. I was very fortunate that I joined the firm. The firm finds opportunities for people who work hard, who have some talent, and who I think are willing to contribute and make efforts and who are ambitious. You know, that was a difficult time. Two weeks after I landed here in London off the associate program, the tragic events of 9-11 happened. I remember it very, very well. And so it was as much about the market opportunity that existed at that time, which was perhaps at least in the activity I was in, slower on the advisory side, but quite busy on the bank loan trading, the distress side. So it was partly context, but partly that there were some very good people who noticed me and I was working hard and diligently despite the conditions. And they said, look, there's this opportunity. Why don't you look to that? And then that just fit very well with my personality, how I like to work. It was deeply analytical. It was always changing. And it was a great platform that had great people. Nishi and I worked together from the moment I moved into securities. I've worked with Nishi since February 2003. We've kind of grown up together. We've seen this business go through its growth phase, through the crisis, through its reemergence. So I guess the advice is the usual things. Whatever you're doing, do your best at it. Make sure what you're doing you like and that it fits well with the way you work. But first and foremost, I come back to the firm provides great opportunities to talent and to people who are willing to make those efforts. You joined Ishii right out of university. How has the job that you do changed and the way in which you do it changed? The way you approach your job and your work, hopefully the core building blocks don't change your work ethic, your attitude to how you want to interact with people, etc. But one thing that's very noticeably different to certainly when I started was 
this sort of notion of things like FaceTime and efficiency around working has just changed significantly. So, you know, the advancement of technology has meant that people can work way more flexibly from remote locations, from anywhere in the world to adapt to whatever their personal circumstances might be within reason. I've certainly been a beneficiary of that. And, you know, I've had three children over the course of my 18 years here. And that has allowed me to stay connected at times when I've been out of the workplace. It's allowed me to manage that very well, very efficiently. And so we've all benefited from that in various different respects. But that certainly has been a big change. And then culturally, the place has changed a lot. You know, I started as, you know, in the distress trading desk, there were very few women around on the floor at that point in time. And that was in 2001. And, you know, you look around today and you look at the strides we've made. Trading is a great example where we now have 50-50 intake of our summer analyst program into trading seats. That's a huge change. And just in the diversity of the population that you see around you, things have changed significantly. Greg and Nishi, thanks for joining us here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 6th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.